Hello and welcome to Sean White's Solar and Energy Storage Podcast. Today we have a special surprise for you. We have Matt Dusterberg of Ohm Connect. And if you want to know more about Matt Dusterberg and Ohm Connect, let's have Matt tell you. Hi, yeah. Excited to be here, Sean. Thanks for having me. Great. Well, thanks for coming. And it's also nice, too, that Matt's not so far away from me. He's just right across the bay here. And so I'm on the East Bay. He's on the, we don't really call it the West Bay, but San Francisco's on the other side of the bay. So yeah, go ahead and introduce yourself. Yeah. Hi, I'm Matt Dusterberg. I am the co-founder and president at Ohm Connect. That's awesome. And so maybe what you could do is tell us a little bit more about Ohm Connect. I know, too, that it's been in the news a little bit. You're doing something with SunPower right now. And so what does Ohm Connect do? We could start with that. Yeah, happy to start with a little bit of background on my company. So Ohm Connect is a service that pays people to reduce their electricity a couple times a week. And the goal behind Ohm Connect is really to help balance the electricity grid from the fluctuations with solar and wind and some of the renewable resources that we're putting online at a really, really rapid pace. It's extremely exciting to see how much renewable energy we've been putting online over the past couple of decades. But there is a problem with all of that, which is we use energy kind of all the time and regardless of whether the sun is shining and whether the wind is blowing. So there are certain times of the day that it's really important for us to help balance the grid by reducing electricity. So what we do is work with thermostats and smart plugs and EVs and storage battery systems. And we help manage that demand on the demand side through kind of users' homes. So we basically connect about 100,000 homes in California and use that as what we call a virtual power plant. Oh, awesome. I love the whole virtual power plant, the VPP idea. So you have it going. Awesome. Yeah, we've been working on this virtual power plant idea for almost a decade now. And what's really cool to see is we're starting to see a lot of folks be really interested in this concept as we're seeing some of the taxing that's happening on the grid today. So would you consider Ohm Connect a virtual power plant, what do you say, provider? Yeah, I would consider us a virtual power plant provider. Awesome. Okay. Yeah. And so I know that they've been doing a lot of virtual power plants over in Germany. So you probably have been over there and seen what they're doing and a little bit over here in the U.S. And it's one of those things, too, that I think is the future. So maybe after we're done, I'm going to give you 10 bucks so you can I can invest in your company, make some profits. Yeah, a lot of people want to invest in equity right now. This seems to be a hot topic. Uh-huh. Awesome. Yeah, especially it sounds like just from what I read in an article this morning, that you have some connection with SunPower, like a big press release just happened recently. That's right. You know, SunPower has worked really closely with us to really bring batteries to market in California. And what's interesting about all this is we're seeing these virtual power plants start to pop up all across the world. As you mentioned, Germany, we're also seeing it in the Southwest and the Northeast. And a lot of those pilot programs are on the order of hundreds of users. And what they found is they can put the concept out there, but it's really hard to get users to basically hand over the keys to their home, which is essentially what they're doing. What these virtual power plants are trying to do is ask users, hey, can I control your thermostat? And can I control your EV charging station? 
And that's a really personal thing. You don't normally just let somebody in your house and fiddle with that. So giving the control over to companies has been one of the biggest challenges with virtual power plants and a challenge that we've really focused on from the beginning. Maybe what you can do before we go any further is to give us your definition of what a VPP is. That's a great question. A virtual power plant or VPP has a lot of different definitions based on who you talk to. But the way we see it at OhmConnect is it's a collection of basically hundreds or thousands of devices that we're controlling all independently, but coordinating in a fashion that the grid can see it. And so there's a lot of challenges kind of with the existing grid infrastructure. We've really built the grid to have kind of unidirectional flow. A big power plant generates electricity. They gets distributed through transmission lines and it kind of flowing out in one direction from the power plants to the homes. So being able to coordinate all of those different little homes and be able to provide that signal to the electricity grid operator is one of the challenges we've overcome over the past decade. And so how do you deal with that, like dealing with all these utilities? And one way I kind of look at it, too, is it's like, I guess you're a power plant and you're aggregating together a whole bunch of little small power plants and batteries inside of cars and loads and sources and all of these different things. And the sun comes out and there's an excess of electricity on the grid or it's too hot and there's not enough to keep all the air conditioners on. And so instead of being like a natural gas power plant and selling electricity to the grid, you're taking a whole bunch of other things together and either you know, selling electricity to the grid or having people turn things down, which I guess is also called demand response. When you reduce your loads, I guess, when there's a huge demand out there. So you're selling to the utility, I guess, just like a power plant. Is that right? Are you negotiating with the utility? Do they give the signal and then you start sending out messages to charge the car slower and things like that? That's right. What you've described is very accurate on what we do on a daily basis. So we interact with the utilities on multiple levels. We actually get data from them, consumer data, and then we send them kind of process data around who's going to reduce during certain times. And that allows us to collect kind of the reductions of what users provided during the specific events. And so, yeah, demand response has been around for multiple decades, but really what's happened over the past 10 years is kind of an inflection of a lot of in-home devices that we can control wirelessly. So we can control your thermostat. We can control your refrigerator if you put a smart plug on it. And in some cases, we're looking to control TVs, not to turn them off, but just to dim them for a little bit during these specific times. So there's a lot of kind of what we call Internet of Things devices that allows us to be able to control a bunch of stuff within the home. Going back to your point, though, what I wanted to highlight is the grid looks at this a little bit differently. They look at virtual power plants as a power plant that is reducing demand as opposed to generating supply. Now, thankfully, the federal government has decreed that basically any megawatts, negative megawatt or negawatt, is equal to one megawatt generated by a power plant. And so we're getting paid the same as a, a gas-fired power plant. We're just taking stuff offline. Awesome. So how would that work for me as a customer? 
I would get paid or I would reduce my bill or who would send me the check? Yeah, so what we've created is a really easy sign-up process. Most of this is obfuscated from the customer. Basically, a user will sign up with HomeConnect and we'll send them an event that says, hey, power is going to get expensive from 6 to 7 p.m. tonight. It's usually when the sun goes down and the sun's not shining, yet people are still using HVAC, whether it's heating or cooling. And so we send them a notification, say, hey, reduce from 6 to 7 p.m. If they do, we'll send them rewards. And we have a virtual currency for that. And people can use that virtual currency, just like airline miles, if you will, to purchase gift cards or cash out directly or enter into prizes. We have a wheel that people can spin and they'll sometimes earn direct cash, a few dollars or Mm -hmm. a free smart plug or even a free smart thermostat. Cool. So when you say virtual cash, is that anything like the blockchain or anything like that? Is that how that gets organized? Great question. But no, we are not kind of crypto related. We're not in blockchain. It's purely just kind of a gamified technique for users to understand that they have inherent value. What we call our virtual currency is watts. So you earn watts and you could reduce for a single day and earn about 2000 watts. That'll give you a couple spins at the wheel. If you get to, say, 10,000 watts, you could probably cash out for a $15 gift card or something like that. It really depends. And we'll have specials and promotions on a daily basis for people to determine what they want to use their watts for. That's interesting. So it's not lowering your bill. They're not. It's not getting sent a check, but you could turn it into like gift cards and stuff like that and play games. So you make it fun. That's right. And what we found is what's quite interesting is folks don't necessarily respond as you would think a rational economic actor would. And I'll give you an example. We offered people to cash out $20 in cash directly to their Venmo or PayPal or $20 in a Target gift card. And you would think that everyone would just pick cash because you could use that $20 to then get a Target gift card. But we found that the majority of folks actually just wanted a Target gift card. And as we dug into it, people said, hey, we earned this. We saved energy. We want to be able to be rewarded. And they saw Target gift cards as more of a reward where cash would basically then just go back into paying a bill or paying for groceries, something that's not fun. You know, it was kind of funny. Recently, I was re-watching that movie Up in the Air with George Clooney. And it's all about getting all these airline miles. And it was kind of funny. It was like they were looking at it as the point is, no, I just want to get the status just to get the status because that's my goal, not because of what the status gives me. (laughs) That's right. The gamification of that is really powerful. People we have have worked really hard to have a long streak. Streaks is one of our big kind of features. And people will pay us money to extend their streak. And so it's flipped everything on on its head. Now, we don't accept payment for extending streaks, but it was interesting that folks are writing and asking for that. <laughs> to get as many watts as they possibly can, I guess, to win right. the watt game. Do you have a like record holder, somebody who has the most? Yes, I can't disclose anything for personal <laughs> information reasons, but we have some really, really high-earning individuals across both California, New York, and Texas. Yeah. And so I suppose a lot of times in the afternoons, dinner time is when these peak times are when it would be more beneficial for people to turn off their air conditioners and then they can go out to dinner and then you can pay for their dinner. 
How about that? Yeah, that's the goal. We're not quite there to pay for the dinner. We're paying for movie tickets, though. That's a little uh -huh. bit lower cost. Well, I guess living in San Francisco makes you a little jaded on how much you can spend on dinner. Yeah. And I guess like for those $5 dinners, they don't taste that well, or at least they're not healthy. <laughs> right. That's a whole new concept. And so that's also happening with sun power and people are earning points and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, well, the interaction with SunPower storage customers is even more fluid. And the reason I say that is those users don't even notice any changes to their electricity usage. They're still running their AC or they're watching TV or running the dishwasher. And what's happening is we're helping control the batteries. So we're charging them up usually during the daytime, as you mentioned, when the sun's shining and electricity is relatively cheap or even free. We're starting to see a lot of free days where electricity is at zero cost during the daytime. And then during the night when prices really start to spike and we have these events, we're able to just basically discharge the batteries. And so we were able to prove that out this year for the first time ever in a pilot that was coordinated with the California Energy Commission called the Demand Side Grid Support Program. So that was a really cool proof of concept that we could really do to expand the adoption of storage and really use that as grid stability and reliability. So in California now, too, they have net metering three, which is controversial. A lot of people in the solar industry don't like it. I was actually just reading an article that it put 22,000 solar installers out of work because everything changed the economics of residential solar. But anyway, beyond that, to do solar, pretty much they encourage people to have batteries and what they are doing, too is filling up their batteries in the middle of the day when they're not home. And then as the evening comes along, I think it's, what is it, 4 to 9 p.m. And so from 4 to 9 p.m., then people would have an incentive to use their battery instead of taking electricity from the grid. And that kind of corresponds to with what you're doing. So do they just get your points in addition to that? Yeah, one of the things that is really challenging is there's a really valuable product in the energy sector which is called resource adequacy or capacity. And this is essentially guaranteeing there's enough energy on the grid. Right now- Resource adequacy. And so that's more from a utility point of view, I guess? Sorry, yes. Energy providers such as utilities or CCAs, which are community choice aggregators in California. Yeah. My um, friend invented that, by the way. Yeah, I mean, it's been a wonderful concept and we've uh -huh. loved working with the CCAs. Yeah, he's on an earlier version of this podcast. His name's Paul Finn, and he came up with the CCA quite a while ago. He was a philosopher, and he wrote up the CCA, and it's taken off. 10% yeah. of the U.S. is on a CCA now. That's crazy. He must be loving the fact that he's had so much influence on the energy sector. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. <laughs> They've taken it over for him, so he's just like, hey, I wrote that a long time ago. <laughs> Some of the academics, they get really, they're just moving on to the next thing, right? Uh -huh. Yeah. We were talking about resource adequacy. And so I guess that's that they need to make sure that there's adequate resources out there for the grid to work. That's right. That's exactly right. They want to make sure there's no blackouts. And so one of the challenges is there's these existing rules that really prevent storage from getting the full value of that. In the California, for example, you really can't be able to sell negative energy to the grid. And what that means is, say you have a usage of about one kilowatt 
but you have a battery that's six kilowatts and you're discharging those six kilowatts to the grid, you actually should be fully compensated for the six kilowatts because of the rules and some of the regulations you would only be able to be paid for one kilowatt. It really dampens the value of this product for resource adequacy. And demand-side grid support, this DSGS program, really allowed for us to capture that full value of six kilowatts per battery, which is usually the size of a battery is six kilowatts. And so we were able to prove that out kind of the first time at scale. Okay. And let's just remind the people listening to, and you're talking about kilowatts, and that's the way that the grid looks at it. A lot of times we talk about the difference of power and energy, and power is in kilowatts, energy is in kilowatt hours. But if you're the grid, of course, you're talking bigger, so you're talking about megawatts. And so they look at grid capacity, and at different times of the day, they need to have more power on the grid to supply everyone. That would be more kilowatts. And so that six kilowatt battery might have 12 kilowatt hours in it. And so that means at full power, you could go for two hours. And thanks for bringing that point up because being in the the weeds of the energy sector, as I have been in all my career, I always forget how much jargon is thrown around. And in fact, when we built our first version of the product, we had KWH, which is the abbreviation for kilowatt hours, all over our product. We said, hey, you're saving one kilowatt hour here, one to KWH. And then when we had customer interviews a few years later, and they had been really trained to say 3 kWh or 4 kWh, we started talking to them and they started referencing this thing called QA. They're like, yeah, I saved 30 QAs over the course of the year. And we were like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and he's, they were like, it's all over your product. It's KWH. <laughs> and I realized we had inserted this energy jargon into a consumer-facing app that no one knows what KWH is. Uh. And so we really have tried to remove a lot of that jargon. And that, I think that's really important for the energy sector is to really bring your jargon down to the lay person, the person outside of the energy sector. It sounds like your customers bought a vowel, KWAH maybe. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Instead of why I came through with the vowel. Yeah. It's my job to educate people. I actually just got done teaching a four day long energy storage class to utilities. And they were all spread out in different islands and things. It was a bunch of island utilities. And so I was talking more about the grid side of things. And we were getting into things like grid forming inverters and things like that. But we don't need to talk about that right now. That'll be a topic of another podcast. I hope you were able to go to a very beautiful place for those island utilities. <laughs> well, just the same place that I am right now is on my computer at home, which isn't so bad. The pros and cons of remote work, right? <laughs> yeah, darn technology. <laughs> so I guess what you're doing too doesn't have really to do with some of the things that I'm doing, because also, as I told you right before we started, that I was working on a National Electrical Code video, and it was on the National Electrical Code section 705.13, and they call that energy management systems. And that gets me really excited. There's all these different rules and things about where you can add solar because you add the solar to what the grid couldn't supply you, and you don't want to over run your bus bars and conductors and things like that. And you have 705.11 and 705.12. And one way of getting around that is by using brains. 
like we have in 705.13 energy management systems, formerly known as power control systems. And one of the things too that we're looking for is UL916. Are you working with that at all? Or would that just be something that probably SunPower would be looking at? We generally interface more with the customer. So mm -hmm. we're not usually in the deep technical weeds of some of the requirements at the electricity grid. So we're usually providing us signals. We're not very close to either of those articles. I wonder too, what happens with the utility. And so the utility gives you the signal and how can you really tell? Like you go like, oh, we turned off this much. And then like people might be cheating or something like that because they want to get more of your watt points. How can they tell that it's really happening? Yeah, that's a, a great question. And I will say people do maximize their output based on the rules that we've provided. And it's interesting to see that because we've really made it into a game. The question underlying this, however, is how can you really understand or know what a customer would have used if they didn't have Ohm Connect? And that's a really hard question. And it, it is debated in a lot of circles and it creates a lot of uncertainty. And thankfully, since Ohm Connect began about 10 years ago, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission approves certain what they call baselines, which are predictions on what you would use based on your smart meter data. And it's not perfect. It's not the best kind of algorithm, but it's a simple one that can be explained to customers and it is stable. And that's been a really valuable component of Ohm Connect is the stability of kind of policy around what the baseline is. So the way we use it is we look at the past 10 days of your smart meter data from, say, 6 to 7 p.m., if we have an event from 6 to 7 p.m., and we would just take your average of those 10 days, and that would be what you normally would use. There are some weather adjustments in there that's a little bit more complicated, but other than that, it's pretty straightforward. So if you normally use 1.2 kilowatts and you use 0.8 kilowatts, we'll be able to show that you've reduced by 0.4 kilowatts. And so that's generally the concept, but there's a lot of other ways to do this baselining. As you could imagine, millions of ways to predict what you could be using. But of course, the reality is no one ever knows because it is a hypothetical scenario. Do you think that there's anybody that's so much into the gaming of the thing that before they get the signal, when there is no signal, they're increasing their loads just so they can turn things off and get more points? <laughs> well, yeah. And in fact, it's actually encouraging in the right way, the electricity usage. And for example, even I do this where before an event, I will really bump up my usage, which by cooling the house further or running my laundry or running my dishwasher and doing all of the chores that I would have done in absence of that event. You sometimes, if I know the day before, I'll run the laundry today versus tomorrow. It is gaming in a sense, but it's also doing exactly what the grid needs, which is shifting that energy usage to different times. Yeah, or maybe somebody going out there and buying a bunch of Bitcoin miners. <laughs> <laughs> we Yeah, we have actually seen that. I have had a couple of friends who joined Ohm Connect. They had their Bitcoin mining operation and they said, that the benefits from Ohm Connect really actually pay off just as much as the Bitcoin because it's such a low margin thing is mining Bitcoin at this point because the electricity costs are so high that if they're combining that with Ohm Connect proceeds, they're actually making quite a bit more margin. What they do is basically run it all the time and then stop during our events and then they capture some of the value.
That's pretty neat. So I live in the area of Pacific Gas and Electric, and I think you probably do too. You're in San Francisco. And actually, PG&E's headquarters is in San Francisco. But how do you deal with them? Do you go into their offices and have meetings and negotiate for a certain amount? And then also, how does OmConnect get paid? That's a great question. And one thing that my history in the energy sector has really allowed OmConnect to really thrive and flourish in this front. So it's a little bit complicated. And when I say we contract with utilities, that is true. But it's a little bit more complicated than just a direct contract. So you're using, as you mentioned, Pacific Gas and Electric. I use Clean Power San Francisco, which is a CCA. And both PG&E and CPSF, which are the two entities I just named, they actually procure power on a daily basis from these energy markets. And in the late 2000s, like around 2008, 2009, California deregulated their electricity grid, which created a basically a market that allows anybody to transact electricity. So you can buy and sell hundreds of megawatts of electricity on your own. You don't have to do it through PG&E. And that market in California is called the California ISO. And there's in, other ISOs. Independent there's a, system operator. That's right. Sorry. The six or seven ISOs or independent system operators across the US. And so we're actually transacting really at the market level. So we're selling power into the KISO. And then often PGE is actually buying it on the other side because they're one of the biggest procurement. But we're also getting other small retail energy providers are purchasing shell energy, commercial energy. There's all sorts of folks that are procuring energy. So it might not always be PGE, but often it is. You get people to turn things down in a summer afternoon, like air conditioners, and then you can sell that just as if it was you were making energy and you could sell that into the grid, the into Cal the ISO ice. grid. Yes, into those markets. Yes. That is very interesting. If I turn off my lights right now, do you think I could get the grid to pay me? <laughs> no. And actually, that's a really good point. I think you asked early on what was some of the challenges that we saw is that the grid really can't see you as an individual. They just don't have the level of data sophistication to be able to manage millions of users. So they really need an aggregate amount. The minimum requirement in California is about a thousand users all reducing simultaneously. So if you reduce whenever you want and your neighbor reduces whenever they want, and that's just kind of noise in the system to them. And it really takes a coordinated effort. And what you see is these network effects. If you get to a thousand users, you'll be able to sell certain energy products, which accounts probably for about 50% of our revenues. But if you get to 10,000 users, we're able to control even more with higher reliability so we can sell at a higher rate and it accounts for additional revenue. So there is a network effect that at higher scale number of folks that we have in coordination, we get a better rate for our users. And we're passing all of that back, or not all of it, but a good portion of that back to our users. So how do you coordinate all this? Is it just through the smart meter data or do you have to install something at the house? Yeah, so we are leveraging smart meter data. That's the primary data feed. But I think the other component here is we're really leveraging kind of technology to communicate with users. So text messages, emails, 
and these Wi-Fi devices that we're directly connected into. At this point, when we have an event, I have about 15 devices in my home. Most of them are smart plugs that you can just plug into anything. And they all turn off. My kids, they're young, they're five and seven. They don't have phones or any kind of communication devices. They know when the nomar hits because they see all these devices turn off. The fridge is off, for example. The lights turn off. Okay, so the biggest load is the air conditioner. How do you turn that off? Usually the Wi-Fi thermostat, and we have good relationships with Google and Ecobee, Honeywell, Sensi, which is also Emerson. We've been able to build these partnerships to allow us to control those devices directly. You would only work with people that have devices that could be controlled with Wi-Fi pretty much, I guess? Yeah, that's the ultimate goal. I think in the future, we'll be really in this background, just kind of controlling a bunch of devices. Right now, the Wi-Fi thermostat penetration is still not the level we want to see. About a third to a half of our users have these devices, and the others are just manually reducing. Often, those are users in lower income areas within our markets. So the people that are manually reducing, how do you know that they're reducing the smart meter data? The smart meter data, that's right. Okay. And so you send them a message, they turn things off, and then they get credit for that. And then you also get paid for that. So that sounds like a lot of wins in there. Yeah, we really see it as a win-win-win, right? So Mm -hmm. the grid is more stable. So they're paying us for that stability, and they're paying us at a lower price than they would have paid the next generator. That's a win. The users are doing something that basically leveraging a new asset that they've never realized they had, which is energy usage. And so they're getting paid for controlling that asset, which is a new win. And then what I think is more broadly, we're doing that at a zero carbon pathway. And so allowing for higher penetration of renewables as well as there's really nothing cleaner than a reduction of electricity when you're going out and buying power. So I think that's a win for the environment. So I really think it's a triple bottom line type of situation here. Great. Yeah, I know that after we had so much solar, I haven't seen data recently for the last couple of years, but I think a few years ago, I was reading that they were curtailing about a billion dollars a year worth of solar power in California, which is one of the reasons why we have the world's largest energy storage system, which has three gigawatt hours of energy storage over in Moss Landing, not too far from where we are. And they're building energy storage systems like crazy. And that's hopefully going to reduce the amount that they have to curtail, but then they're building more solar fast too. And so I could just tell you that it's probably somewhere on the magnitude of a billion dollars a year. It might be double of that, something in that neighborhood. Do you know the data or? Yeah, well, so I think that was a few years ago. And, you know, what you were talking about is probably three gigawatt hours. We're seeing a need for, and there was a recent Department of Energy report released on this, a need for 160 gigawatts in the next five to 10 years to really get to the renewable penetration that we need. And the reality is there's so much more electricity being used with some of the trends that we're seeing. So electrification of the home, which is more stove and all of the gas that you used to use in your home is moving to electric. And then, of course, the big kicker, which is electric vehicles. Yet we're still curtailing, as you mentioned, you know, a billion dollars worth even with all that load coming online. So it's really the need for the grid. And what I'm so excited about is I feel like we're really close to figuring out how to control our carbon footprint. 
We have all of this renewable coming online. We're electrifying the transportation sector. The biggest challenge still remains is how do you match that? How do you make sure that we're charging when the sun's shining, you know, and users are going to want to plug in when they get home, right? And they don't want to think about all that. So is there somebody who can help assist those users in doing so? Yeah, electric cars sure are a lot of fun. I have one. It's got 85 kilowatt hours in it. And unfortunately, I can't send the electricity the other way. So at least I can stop charging my car to help you out. But I think in the next few years, things are going to change because they're going to have to change because of all the problems that we're talking about. And then when they do change, we're going to be able to dispatch our cars onto the grid. They're pretty much just four-wheeled energy storage systems that are sitting there for 23 and a half hours a day doing nothing. And even when we do use them, usually we're not cycling that battery all the way up and all the way down. A lot of times my battery, it's like a regular day, I might use 20% of it. And then there's all this extra that needs to be used and it could be helping stabilize things so that you have more even power coming from the power plants or greater amounts of power coming from the power plants during the middle of the day when the sun's shining or when the wind's blowing. And then we can make it so the grid runs a lot smoother. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I loved how you started it off. It's a really fun device, electric vehicles. I was reading a kind of piece of fiction about if electric vehicles were first and then people tried to introduce gas cars. And from that (laughs) perspective, it's really funny. Like you have to take a second for it to turn on and turn over and it makes a lot of noise. And all of a sudden all these fumes are coming out. Yeah, and it's amazing like, to me that they even work with like, you know, you could drive 100,000 miles with like thousands of explosions a second. I mean, it's crazy. All of these moving pieces, any one of them could break. Yeah, it's, it is quite an automotive engineering feat, but it really is fun. These EVs are super fun. And you're absolutely right. 23 and a half hours a day, they are being not used at all. They're latent and they can be leveraged for the grid. Now, one challenge with that right now is in some of the rules and regulations in California won't allow you, even if you could discharge that battery to the grid, they won't actually pay you for that. And that's what's actually so interesting about this SunPower pilot program we did, which is really proving out the value of discharging devices back into the grid. So whether that storage, which we focused on with SunPower, or EVs, you know, both could work. Yeah, I kind of think that as we get more electric vehicles and niche electric vehicle might be using as much electricity as a house, maybe at least for a commuter, which I'm not a commuter, then we have all of this demand to charge our electric vehicles. And then the people that are against feeding the grid with electric vehicles in the beginning, which are the utilities and the electric vehicle manufacturers, are going to be the ones that are going to be mostly for it as time goes on, because we're not going to be able to drive electric vehicles if we can't charge them. And the only way we're going to be able to charge them is if we use the electric vehicles to stabilize the grid by sending electricity in both directions when we're not driving the cars. That's absolutely right. And you know what we've seen with Tesla is really cool stuff where it's not, do you want to charge right away? It's really, when do you want your car charged by? That's kind of the consumer decision that needs to be made. And it allows, you know, third parties like Tesla or OhmConnect 
to really manage that in the background. So the customer doesn't have to think about it, but we're able to serve the grid using the customer's devices. Yeah. And I think there's just like a different mentality. So people start off with the gas cars and they're like, well, I could fill it up really quick and I could go on this really long trip. But how often do you go on a really long trip? I actually went on my longest trip that I ever took in my car. It was like three hours. I drove to Fresno last week to do some consulting. And it was like, I did stop a little bit, but I didn't even really have to. I just had a little bit of extra time and it wasn't a big deal. You know, it's like, it's nice to stretch your legs anyway. And all the rest of the time I've had this car, it's never been a problem. And every time I wake up in the morning, I have as full of a tank. It's not really a tank, but just let's call it that. I have as full of a tank as I want. And so I have plenty of range to get me through the day. And then at home, it charges it a little bit slower than some other place. But it's like you're just sleeping anyway. So why not? That's right. And it's funny, you don't have to deal with, you know, there's always a little bit of gasoline that gets on your hand when you're pumping. And it just stays with you for the rest of the day. <laughs> Ew, yuck. I know I hate renting cars and I have to go to gas stations. It's disgusting. Sometimes I rent an electric car though too. But yeah, this stuff is pretty amazing. And so I imagine that the technology that you're using is probably going to evolve a lot too over the coming years and figure out when to send it from the car, when not to. Another thing that I think is going to be pretty important too is since in the daytime, we need to take that extra solar energy, especially at certain times of the years, and put it into the batteries, which I think about 95% of these batteries that we're making, the lithium-ion batteries, are in cars. And then we need it to help support our loads in the evening time. And so the way that that probably is going to work, too, is people are going to go to work, and they are going to charge up in the middle of the day. And then in the evenings, they will let it out of their car. And another thing, too, that I've even kind of realized is you don't need that big of a connection. I mean, my girlfriend's got an electric vehicle and she does a lot of telecommuting and she can actually charge her, get everything she needs from a little 120 volt plug in the wall. And she's actually never even charged it into the other plug. And I was doing that at first. So it's not a whole bunch all at once. Of course, being able to do more is better. Not everybody can survive with the 120 volt plug in the wall, but just kind of trying to make a point here where it's not that big of a deal to charge it super fast if you've got a lot of time. That's right. And I think really the view that these devices that are smaller and kind of the incremental steps that I think you're referring to can even be started at a smaller level. And one of the things we found is a refrigerator is one of the most powerful devices within the home, almost as much as an HVAC system or a thermostat. And the reason is, is that fridge is on all the time. So no matter when I have an event, we in Texas, for example, we have events all the time in the morning from 7 to 9 a.m. because there's a real big peak then. And we're turning off that refrigerator for 15 minutes at a time, 30 minutes at a time, an hour at a time. And that saves a bunch of compression cycles on the refrigerator. It stays cold. And most of the time, it generates a ton of value for the user. Whereas sometimes, you know, that thermostat may not be always on, you know, we're not cooling at 7 to 9 a.m., for example. And so it really is interesting, these small incremental things, the smart plug's worth $8. You can get it from Ohm Connect often for free because we're able to see a huge amount of value back to the user within just a few months. So that's kind of interesting to me that you said in Texas, 
from 7 to 9 a.m. is when there's people need to turn things off. Is that because all the cattle rustlers are just got back from rustling cattle? <laughs> And they're trying to turn on their electric coffee pots. Is that what's happening there? It's a good hypothesis, but really it's the wind. So Texas is predominantly renewables from wind. And so they get a lot at the middle of the night. And then it starts to tail off in the morning right before solar comes on. And so you've got a little bit of a gap right now in the morning where you're seeing really, really high prices. Between the wind and the sun. Exactly. Right. It's really when the sun's not shining and the wind's not blowing. Okay, that makes so it isn't the cattle rustler. So maybe a little bit, maybe at least one. Yeah, they're they're certainly contributing. I'll give Uh you that. So let's talk about those little devices that you plug in and you can turn off. So are they Wi-Fi devices and then you supply them to people too? And you just plug it in and then it can turn things off. I hope it doesn't cut us off right now. (laughs) It is funny. We'll all have meetings and during an event, usually in the afternoon, I'll be on a Zoom call and everything goes dark around me and people are like, what happened? Yeah, it's nice that our computers do have battery backup for, you know, laptops. Exactly. Yeah. And so does a lot of our devices, you know, phones. Yes. We're looking at these small devices that you can plug into the wall that has a kilowatt of battery that could power a lot of your household needs and for an hour. But going back to the plug, this is something that we found early on back in like 2016-17. I was originally focused on like, hey, let's get a bunch bunch of Teslas on? Could we get all these like battery systems? And the reality is like those devices are really not as kind of penetrated as a refrigerator, you know, in terms of the market. Not everyone has a Tesla. Everyone has a refrigerator. And so what we realize is if you can control this plug, which is $8, all it is is a Wi-Fi chip inside of a device where you can control, you know, your plugs remotely. And it's really powerful in that it's just a very simple device and it can be used ubiquitously kind of within any household. Do you have kids? Maybe you could put it on their TV too. We actually do put it on their power strip, uh, their (laughs) speaker system. They Uh get a little frustrated, but they now know the ability how to turn it back on during an event. (laughs) Darn smart kids. Well, at least they're learning. They can figure some of this stuff out. And so you have the small devices. You know, one thing that I heard about that was kind of interesting, I don't know the name of the person that's doing this. I know it was it's somebody that I'm working with was trying to sell me an induction stove because these induction stoves, they were doing research on them. And the induction stoves, they were converting them to take batteries. They're putting lithium ion batteries in these induction stoves. Mm. And then they were making it so you could plug the stove in at a regular 120 volt outlet instead of plugging the stove into a bigger outlet and then have to change the electricity for the house and run into all that kind of trouble. And so that would be another thing too, where this stove is pretty much running off of batteries some of the times. In fact, if the power goes out, he told me that they even had a way to just plug into that battery so they could charge their phone and stuff like that. Have you heard about that? I think the guy's in Berkeley or something. I haven't heard of that specific one, but I think that is reflects a broader trend. I mean, what Tesla was able to do just quite remarkably is lower the price of these lithium ion batteries to a fraction of what the cost is. And so you were talking about you have an 85 kilowatt battery in your garage. You know, if you imagine just like five of those kilowatts being spread out across your home and all of your different devices and then being able to be really resilient to any blackouts, to any grid fluctuations, as well as providing value to the grid, 
the grid will help pay for those batteries as well as you know create um, profit for you over the long term. So I think that's really kind of underlying all of this is kind of just this lithium ion cratering in price, which allows us to really have that flexibility that we haven't had before in our homes. Yeah, you did mention something about like having a one kilowatt hour battery in your house that would just kind of offset whatever you plugged into it. Yeah, it's a very small startup also out of California. The company is Moduli. Yeah, we've been really excited to work with them. We have an initial pilot with them going. So that's been pretty exciting for us. So like technically, how does that work? So I know according to the National Electrical Code, you can't really feed the grid even in your house with that, without an interconnection agreement, and it's not going to be able to be plugged in and things like that but you could plug devices into that device that it could power. Is that how it works? Yeah, well, actually, what's interesting about this is that it's kind of a standalone battery unit that plugs back into the electrical system. So you just plug it in, and then it can serve the rest of the grid in the house as if there's a blackout, for example. So it is really a standalone kind of backup system. It's within the house, so it has kind of the same dimensions as a power wall, but it's inside the home, whereas, you know, power walls are often kind of like in the garage or outside. Okay, so does it feed the grid then? Uh, No, it would not. And one of the reasons it can't feed the grid is there's no reason to. You couldn't make any money from that. And that's why that, as I mentioned, that SunPower pilot was so important is really to prove out the concept of how can you get paid for feeding the grid? So the current design, from my understanding, I'm not a Moduli employee, so the current design, I believe, does not go back to the grid. Okay, great. How do you spell that? And I'll go, I'll look it up myself and maybe we'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, M-O-D-U-L-Y. M-O-D-U-L-Y. I'll check it out. Sounds pretty cool. Yeah, I really liked what they're doing there. Okay. And then the name of your company, and you're, you said a founder or a co-founder, is it? Yeah, I started this in 2013 with another co-founder, Curtis. And then we brought on a third co-founder about a year later. Great. Okay. And it's called Ohm Connect. And did you ask George Ohm for permission to use his name? <laughs> no, we did not. But we also were looking at other names like Volt Attach and Ampfasten. We really wanted to have a unit of electricity that we're connecting to. <laughs> it was yeah. the whole goal. <laughs> Obviously, you can see where that came from now. Yeah, and there's lots of different units for electricity. And so, yeah, there's probably already somebody that's using the watt, the volt, the amp. I think even Tesla is a unit of electricity. And so ohm is a unit of electricity that's resistance. And so we talk about ohms is how much resistance a wire has on it and voltage drop and things like that. And so it was named after George Ohm and he got his own law, Ohm's law. That's right. For our consumers who are not energy literate, well, you know, not as energy literate as we are, they really look at it as like a meditative view there. It's an ohm from the yoga or. Oh, uh, then you got to just do the OM or just do that like backwards three or whatever it is. Right. Okay. You ready? Ohm. 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 Okay. <laughs> Ohm's law. <laughs> Great. Yeah. Yeah. So yoga is good. There's lots of people in this industry that are probably doing yoga right this minute. And yoga is a good thing to do while you're shedding loads, while you're turning off your electronics, while you're saving the grid, and while you're doing the win-win-win, you're helping out 
the utility because we care so much about their feelings and we're helping out ourselves and all of our friends on the grid and we're helping out Ohm Connect. And it sounds like a pretty neat type of a company. I guess you wouldn't really call it a startup because you've been doing it for a decade. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think we're an established company at this point yeah. and we're excited about how much we can grow going forward. We're really excited about mm-hmm. the next few years. Yeah. Congratulations. And it seems to me too, like, you know, if you started that long ago, you were kind of ahead of your time. And so now your time is coming right now. It's the the next couple of years, I think are going to be huge. And a lot of that has to do with the saturation of intermittent renewables on the grid. That's right. I think 2024 will be the year of the VPP. The 2024, the year of the VPP. That's awesome. I've been looking forward to that. And I've been studying about them. I'm also on this jury to give awards for, they call it the Smarter E or Intersolar. It's the conference that's headquartered out of Germany. And I remember them showing me a virtual power plant provider a couple of years ago. And I was like, wow, that's so cool. And they're like, oh yeah, we've been doing this for a while. So those Germans, they're kind of ahead of us in some ways, but thanks for helping America catch up. And then pretty soon we're just going to pass them. Absolutely. So thanks a lot, Matt Dusterberg, for joining us. And Matt, maybe you could tell us a little bit more about yourself, your background, and if you want to give out information like your social security number or things like that, maybe just where people can find you on the internet, probably. What do you think? Yeah, I'll omit the social security number. But yeah, please feel free to reach out to Ohm Connect and sign up. We are really excited about kind of the upcoming year of the the VPP 2024. But one of the things I want to leave with is really our vision at Ohm Connect, which is 100% clean energy for everyone. And we really were thoughtful about how we actually shape this. And obviously, 100% clean energy is a very important piece. I want to highlight the 100%. It's not, you know, we're kind of offsetting with renewables. It's that all of the time that we're not, you know, mostly renewables, we're 100% renewables. And that can only happen with some kind of dynamicism on the demand side. The other component I wanted to highlight is for everyone. When the kind of energy revolution that we're seeing into this world of renewables, we really need to have everyone participate. It can't be the folks that have enough to buy solar or an EV or storage. We need everyone to be part of this. And so it's easy to sign up. It's free for anyone to sign up and you will get paid for it. So it's really a no brainer and you can start with just behavioral changes and then you can add a plug or a thermostat and really start to move up the ladder of kind of smart device penetration within the home. Great. So thanks, Matt Dusterberg of Ohm Connect, the co-founder and the president of Ohm Connect. My daughter would be really proud of you for being a president. She's really proud of me for being president of NorCal Solar. You can check out NorCal Solar. It's a nonprofit at norcalsolar.org. We're an ACES chapter, but also if you want to get educated about solar, about storage, about energy storage systems, about 705.13, that's energy management systems, about UL916, check it out. Check me out at solar, S-E-A-N, that's solarshawn.com.